Nobody died of obesity 200,000 years ago. They died of starvation. So whoever can consume the most sugar in the autumn of the year would put on the most weight, and that would allow them to survive to the next year. That's why we're so addicted to sugars. That was Dr. Lewis Cantley, professor of cancer biology and the director of the Meyer Cancer Center at Weill Cornell Medicine, explaining how humans are naturally predisposed to crave sugar. And you're listening to Weight Matters, where we unpack the science behind our weight, why it matters, and the effects it has on our health, psychology, and society. This season, join Drs. Louis Aroni and Katherine Saunders, leading experts in the field of obesity medicine and co-founders of IntelliHealth, as they tackle the many ways weight impacts our broader health and along with experts in the field, explore innovative strategies for preventing and treating obesity. In this episode, Dr. Cantley breaks down the correlations between obesity, diabetes, and cancer. He also provides an update on some of the latest innovations in cancer treatment, and he offers advice to anyone who's looking to break their sugar addiction. We're glad to have you along for this journey. There's a lot to discuss, so let's dive in. Thanks very much for being here, Lou. We're really eager to discuss your research and the connection between obesity and cancer. How are you today? I'm fine. It's, it's a real pleasure to be able to have this discussion. I think there's some exciting things happening in our understanding of obesity and cancer, and, and I'm glad to talk about them today. How did you get into this field? My background actually is a chemist and ultimately a biochemist. In fact, I never really took biology courses in college or even graduate school. I focused entirely on looking at the biochemistry of cells and metabolism, and ultimately got deeper and deeper into human diseases. And in the course of that work, my laboratory discovered an enzyme, which I'll call PI3K, the three letters PI, the number three, and the letter K. That stands for phosphoinositide 3-kinase, which I'm sure you'll forget. But that enzyme we discovered because it co-purified with a number of oncoproteins. So these are proteins that cause cancer that are products of oncogenes. And PI3K was showing up associated with many different gene products that were driving cancer. And ultimately, PI3K itself turns out to be one of the most mutated genes in all of cancer. And its mutations allow it to get activated by insulin. And that is the key thing that brought me this connection between obesity, insulin resistance, and cancer. The same enzyme was mediating all of these effects. When it failed to work, it was causing insulin resistance. When it worked too well, it caused cancer. So that's really been the focus of my laboratory for the last 25 years or more. Dr. Cantley, thank you for the introduction to how you became interested in your current research. One of our goals in this podcast is to really highlight that metabolic conditions and obesity really affect so many different diseases, over 200 different conditions, and cancer Really, one of the most important ones. So we'd love to get into a little bit of a discussion of the correlation between obesity and cancer. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Sure. I would argue 
and, and I think the data is now very convincing, that the reason obesity links to cancer, and I should say the cancer that most frequently correlates with obesity is endometrial cancer. So if a woman is obese or even overweight, her probability of getting endometrial cancer can double or more. So that is uh, you know, a very large correlation, the best correlation of any disease, almost any cancer, except for lung cancer and smoking. So the question is why? So as we now have the ability to sequence every gene in every cancer, endometrial cancer genes were sequenced to see what genes were mutated. And it turned out the genes that were most frequently mutated in endometrial cancer were the PI3 kinase gene. And another gene that opposes what PI3 kinase does called P10, P-T-E-N, which stands for phosphatase on human chromosome 10. And that gene does exactly the opposite of what PI3K does. PI3K puts a phosphate on a lipid, and P10 removes that same phosphate. And if you either lose the P10 gene or you get activating mutations in the PI3K gene, you turn on dramatically the production of this lipid. And this lipid mediates everything insulin does. And of course, insulin and its close relative insulin-like growth factor are what drive growth. They grow, drive growth of all the cells in your body. When type 1 diabetes was first described, it was described as children who failed to thrive. They were very small. They did not grow at nearly the rate of other children. And when these children were examined more carefully, they found that they had glucose in their urine. In fact, that's what diabetes stands for, sugar in the urine. And ultimately, it was discovered that there was an enzyme called insulin that was needed to regulate the glucose in your bloodstream. And if you don't have insulin, can't make insulin, which is what type 1 diabetes is, then the glucose builds up in the bloodstream and ends up in the urine. So that's type 1 diabetes. It's a failure of the ability of insulin to activate PI3 kinase that causes that disease. So that's where everything starts out. So we've known since the discovery of insulin in the 1920s that insulin causes cells to grow. And of course, we also know that in adults, insulin regulates glucose in the body. So insulin is really very important for managing glucose levels. It is the one hormone that's most critical. But the problem is, if you have too much insulin, as an adult in particular, then you can still grow growth of cells. You can drive growth of fat cells to put on weight. But if you have mutations in other genes like PI3K, then you can drive the growth of cancers and endometrial cancer being the one that correlates best, but many other cancers, breast cancers, uh, prostate cancers, all the more common cancers are driven by mutations in either this P10 gene I mentioned or PI3K. So this strong correlation, which we began to realize around 25 years ago, was surprising that two of the most important diseases in America, cancer and diabetes, are both the consequence of the same gene, PI3K. That's just so interesting. I think very few people understand that very close relationship. How does obesity fit into the picture with the cancer and diabetes? So what happens when people become obese, and, and I should say, and we'll get to sugar in more detail in this, in this uh, podcast, but in the end, sugar is, turns out to be our enemy. 
And obesity is almost invariably a consequence of eating too much sugar. Now, most nutritionists will say, well, if you eat too much of anything, you will become obese. Sugar is the thing that causes obesity more than any other thing that you eat. And we now understand at the molecular level why that is so. In fact, I'll get to that molecular level now because it's very important to everything else that I say. And we only understood this within the last year. So what I'm telling you now is something that is not broadly known, even among scientists who focus in this field, because we only published it two months ago in a journal called Nature. And what we discovered, and this was work that I did in collaboration with Marcus Goncalves, who's an endocrinologist at Wild Cornell, and his, his entire career is focused on how insulin works, as he's a type of endocrinologist who really focuses on diabetes. And his work showed that when you eat sugar, and by sugar I mean there are many types of sugar, but by the sugar I'm focusing on are the sugars that taste sweet. And the sugars that taste sweet all have fructose in them. The two major ones that we eat are sucrose, which is a mixture of 50-50 mixture of glucose and fructose, or high fructose corn syrup, which is made from corn by converting glucose to fructose. And they both have a mixture of fructose and glucose in them. And it's the fructose that really makes them taste sweet. Glucose alone, it doesn't really taste that sweet. So any sugar that you eat that tastes sweet will do what I'm about to describe. When it gets into the intestine, the intestinal cells will absorb the fructose in the lumen of the intestine that you just ate that comes from your stomach into the intestine. And as it gets to the tips of those villi, so the intestines have these finger-like projections that go into the intestine that absorb all the food. And as the fructose gets to the villi, it gets absorbed at the tip of the villi cells and keeps them alive and allows them to continue to grow so that the villi get longer and longer and longer. Now, only fructose can do that. No other sugar that you eat can make those villi grow longer. Lactose, which is sugar in milk, cannot do it. Glucose alone cannot do it. It's fructose that does it. The consequence then of eating sugar every day for a week or so is that the villi will get longer and longer and longer until they can absorb 30% more food that you ingest than villi from, from people who have not eaten sugar. Now that longer length of the villi means that when you eat a meal, 30% more of the calories in that meal, no matter what they are, whether it's fats or proteins or sugars, 30% more of those will all get into your bloodstream and allow you to gain weight. So we didn't know this a year ago. This is very recent. But it suddenly makes everything make sense. Why is it that eating sugar makes you become obese? It's not just the calories in the sugar that's making you gain weight. It's the consequence of the sugar making your intestine absorb more food. So that anything you eat after that will continue to be absorbed at a higher rate. So I know I've talked to people who say, I and my friend, we both eat the same amount of food and uh, I'm gaining weight and my friend is not. Why is that true? And Probably that person is correct. If that person is eating more sugar than their friend, then the calories that person takes in will be absorbed at 30% higher rate. That means like they're eating 30% more food every day. Not that you're eating more food, it's just that it's being absorbed in your intestine at a higher rate. So that, I think, suddenly explains what's been argued for the last 
50 years and now maybe even 100 years, if you go back and look into the literature, particularly the German literature of research in the turn of the century, 20th century, I mean, that we now have seen this correlation between increased sugar consumption and obesity, but the actual mechanism was always obscure. But I think we now understand it. It's sugar has the unique ability to make you absorb more food from what you eat. Wow, Dr. Kelly, this is absolutely fascinating. When when your nature paper came out, I remember talking to Marcus about it, and it really is so groundbreaking to understand which version of sugar leads to this phenomenon and, and how it explains so much. In our field, there's always been a debate about whether a low-carb diet is better or a low-fat diet is better. So it sounds like you are very, very much pro a low-carb diet in that it's also a low-sugar, a low-fructose diet. Is that correct? Well, I think if you cut out the sugar, and again, by sugar, I mean anything that has fructose in it, you can eliminate the mechanism I just described. And that would be equivalent to reducing your calorie consumption per day by 30%, which most people have trouble doing. That's an amazing finding. But as far as a a simple recommendation for our listeners who may be having trouble losing weight or if they're trying to decrease their cancer risk, it sounds like that would be your advice to reduce sugar. Exactly. It's more important than anything else you can do. Now, I have to say that I myself cut sugar out of my diet in the 1970s. So it's been a long time. In the 1970s, I had no biochemical data to explain why sugar might be causing obesity. But I grew up in rural West Virginia, And I know that in the 1950s, when I was a child, sugar was a rare thing for us to consume. Uh, We pretty much ate whatever we could grow on the farm. And sugar was very expensive to buy. This was before high fructose corn syrup was even available. And so I didn't know a single person who was overweight. So that's West Virginia, rural West Virginia. People worked on the farm. They pretty much ate what they grew. Nobody grew sugar cane or even sugar beets, for that matter, were rarely grown. So there wasn't much sugar consumption. And then by the 1975, in the mid-1970s, I had gotten my degree at Cornell, my PhD. And um, I uh, went back to West Virginia a few times to visit and hung out with some of my friends and relatives. And I noticed that almost everyone was obese. And it was like, what had happened? What happened between the 50s and the 70s? that caused this massive increase in weight. And so I watched what people were doing. And it wasn't that they weren't exercising. In fact, people were playing tennis, people were jogging. They were doing all the things that TV commercials were telling you. They joined the Pepsi generation. They were exercising. But at the end of that exercise, they would all drink 16 ounce sugary drink, sometimes two or three. Some will drink diet drinks But the ones that drank diet drinks at the end of the day would eat half a gallon of ice cream because they were so, their brain was so desperate for the real thing that they would have to eat some sweet food before they could go to sleep at night. And they they would tell me this. So how can you eat half a gallon of ice cream? Otherwise, it would raid the refrigerator at 2 in the morning. So this is really very different from the way it was in the 1950s. And uh, clearly, it was consumption of sugary drinks mainly that was causing this change. We had ice cream in the 50s. 
or you know three or four times a year. But the sugar drink consumption was what had most dramatically changed. So at that point, I decided I would never drink another sugary drink or or diet drink for that matter, because the diet drink was causing the addiction to sweetness. And I pretty much stuck to it, much to my wife's frustration, because uh, she would make these fantastic desserts. She loved to make desserts, and I would refuse to eat them, <laughs> or maybe take one bite and say, oh, that's great. Uh, but I pretty much stuck with it, and I still weigh, actually, I don't weigh as much as I weighed when I graduated high school. But certainly, that has avoided me ever putting on any weight in the last 30, 40 years. So, Dr. Cantley, it sounds like you absolutely practice what you preach. So that is very impressive. Thank you for explaining how fructose leads to overconsumption of calories and and ultimately obesity. I'd love to circle back and talk a little bit about how obesity leads to cancer. Would you mind elaborating on the mechanism of obesity leading to cancer? So obesity, as we know, correlates strongly with insulin resistance. And this all has to do with the fact that as you begin to gain weight, the liver and muscle become insulin resistant. And the mechanisms for insulin resistance are pretty complicated, so I won't try to explain those. We don't even fully understand all the ways that that can happen. But we know very clearly that gaining weight causes insulin resistance. And as you become insulin resistant, this means the pancreas has to make more insulin in order to tell the liver to quit producing glucose and tell the muscle to store the glucose as glycogen. So those two events lower serum glucose back to normal. So it's that elevation in glucose after you eat the carbohydrate-rich diet that makes the pancreas release insulin. The insulin then tells the liver to quit making any more glucose and tells the muscle to store whatever glucose is in the blood as glycogen and everything comes back to homeostasis. So that's how it all works when you're healthy. But as one gains weight, the muscle and liver no longer respond as well. They become insulin resistant, so the pancreas has to make more insulin. And as that insulin level goes up, it can ultimately bring the glucose back in control. So most people who have insulin resistance don't even know they're insulin resistant unless they take a glucose tolerance test because their glucose levels are pretty normal. But at the expense of making lots and lots of insulin. So the problem is that if insulin levels become very high, they can activate PI3 kinase in other tissues that normally would not respond so much. So almost every tissue in your body has insulin receptors. And what we've discovered is that as tumors emerge from various tissues like the endometrium or from breast or prostate, for example, those microtumors have high levels of insulin receptor. And often they have mutations in PI3 kinase, PI3K, I mentioned earlier, or they have loss of function mutations in P10 that I also mentioned earlier, which is PI3K. In either event, this allows insulin to activate PI3K better than it can activate the normal PI3K in liver and muscle. So while your liver and muscle may be insulin resistant, this high level of, of serum insulin will trigger your glucose to go into the tumor and drive growth of the tumor. And we know that's true. We've known it for many years that, that tumors take up glucose better than any other tissue in the body. 
So that's why you see this correlation between insulin resistance and cancer. So it's, there's a correlation between obesity and cancer, but it's really almost, I would argue, invariably a consequence of the insulin resistance that occurs as a consequence of obesity that drives the growth of the tumor. So the idea is that certain tissues are resistant to the effect of insulin, but other tissue is not, and particularly the tumor cells, and so the tumors grow preferentially and basically take the nutrition away, glucose nutrition, away from muscle and liver. That's exactly right. The tumor with PI3K mutations is going to win out over muscle or tumor in taking up glucose. Now, the first observation of that was actually made by a German scientist called Otto Warburg. And he was very famous, actually the most famous cancer researcher in the world between 1920 and the 1970s. And he made the observation that tumors take up glucose at a much higher rate than normal tissue and that they convert it to lactate. And that's called the Warburg effect, very famous first characterization of cancer that really gave us some insight as to what was going on in cancer. And he got the Nobel Prize for his work on metabolism, was very highly influential and all thought about cancer. But he totally believed that cancer was a consequence of an increase in sugar consumption. And there was this dramatic correlation going on in the early part of the 20th century of cancer rates going up dramatically. Cancers that were rarely seen prior to 1900 were suddenly very frequently observed, including endometrial cancer. But breast cancer rates went up very rapidly between 1900 and 1920. And that perfectly correlated by about a 10-year lag with a tenfold increase in sugar consumption in Europe and in America. And in fact, Areas of the world that did not adopt this Western diet of high sugar consumption did not have these increases in cancer rates. Until today, where almost everyone eats high rates of sugar throughout all cultures in the world. And so we're now seeing cancer rates go up everywhere. But it was really Otto Warburg who first made this observation. And if you want to read more about this, there's a book written by a man named Sam Apple. That's apple as in the fruit apple. And uh, it's called Ravenous. And it's all about Otto Warburg and this observation correlating sugar consumption with cancer. It came out in May of this year. Wow. Thank you for the suggestion. So it's pretty clear that we should all be reducing our fructose consumption. But I'd love to understand a little bit more about the effect of insulin on tumors. Is there any way to block insulin's effect on tumors? So researchers, companies have attempted to develop insulin receptor inhibitors and IGF-1 receptor inhibitors to treat cancers. The problem is, as you might expect, if you inhibit insulin receptor, then you create an even worse incidence of insulin resistance. And so the endocrinologist is then called in to deal with that. And the endocrinologist will say, well, this person's glucose is far too high. We have to inject them with insulin. As a consequence, it's a sort of futile attempt to uh, turn off the weight, but the consequence of turning it off globally, both muscle and fat, is that you end up having to give insulin back and that reactivates PI3 kinase in the tumor. 
Now, the other way to do it is just to inhibit PI3K, the enzyme that's mutated. And so that uh, attempts to do that were initiated more than a dozen years ago. And uh, I had a team of 65 scientists and oncologists work together with various companies, most notably Novartis, to try to develop PI3 kinase inhibitors, which we thought might be better than trying to develop insulin receptor inhibitors, since that's the gene that is mutated. And so these inhibitors uh, went into clinical trials, and it took a long time to get them approved. But one of them has been approved, a drug called Fulvestrant, also called PCRAY, I-Q-R-A-Y, as the commercial name, just approved two years ago for breast cancer. It's ER positive with PIK3CA, PI3 kinase mutations. The trouble is it's not really a home run for the same reason that I mentioned inhibiting the insulin receptors problem in that the patients become insulin resistant and that has to be dealt with. And if it's not controllable, the endocrinologist will want to give the patient insulin, which of course will reactivate PI3K in the tumor and therefore it's the effectiveness. So these drugs are approved, they extend life, but they're not home runs, they don't cure. So we're now currently working on clinical trials to see if we can make that drug and other PI3K inhibitors that are also now approved more effective. And to make them more effective is to keep insulin levels down by changing the diet. So going on a very low carbohydrate diet, we've shown at least in mice, results in this drug now being dramatically more effective. The tumors just melt away if we can keep the insulin level down. So we've now opened uh, several clinical trials with dietary intervention, what we call a low carbohydrate. It's also sometimes called a ketogenic diet, although we're not interested in this diet as a way to make ketones. It's really keeping the insulin down. So only 8% carbohydrate with no rapid release carbohydrate, virtually no sugar in the diet at all. It sounds like your feeling is that a ketogenic or low-carb diet will reduce recurrence of cancer in at least hormone-sensitive tumors? We think that, uh, of course, we're focusing this on endometrial and breast cancers because you see a lot of mutations in those two diseases, PI3 kinase gene. So we think that it'll work best there. But the truth is, when we look at our mouse models of cancer, we, we tried 12 different types of cancers. And every single cancer responded to PI3 kinase inhibitor, PI3K inhibitor, if we put the mouse on this low-carbohydrate diet. So it's possible these drugs will have very broad effects, even in patients who have no mutations in the gene, that uh, they will still respond to PI3K on a low-carbohydrate diet to keep insulin levels down. So as I said earlier, probably insulin drives most cancers, if not all cancers. So keeping insulin down and giving a PI3K inhibitor is much more effective than just keeping the insulin down and causing the tumors to shrink and die. Wow. I know that in breast cancer, the, the data that I've seen in terms of dietary approaches to reducing recurrence is really in low fat. Does this also apply to breast cancer or is there something different about breast cancer where low fat is the preferred approach? Yeah. So I'm not a fan of low fat diets. I don't doubt that there are animal fats, particularly beef and 
pork fats that can uh, give bad outcomes. Uh, certainly in prostate cancer, there's strong evidence for that from one of my colleagues, uh, uh, Massimo Loda. But all fats are not the same. So olive oil is a fat. Fish oils are fats. And there's no correlation at all between olive oil and fish oils and cancer. So when we design our low-carbohydrate diets, actually, obviously if you only have 8% of the total calories in the diet are carbohydrate, you have to make up the rest of it with either protein or fat. So we find that the healthiest way to do this is to use oils like uh, olive oil or fish oils or fatty fish as part of the diet. Uh, so there are a lot of ways to come up with these low-carbohydrate diets that you have to have high fat in these diets for them to be effective because if you make up the diet with mostly protein, the liver will convert that protein into sugar pretty quickly. Uh, but fat cannot be converted into sugar. And as a consequence, a higher fat in the diet is better at preventing the growth of the tumor. But again, it's the type of fat that you use that's important. Yeah, that's really a very important point because there's been a lot of controversy about ketogenic diets and high-fat diets because of uh, the issue of what kind of fat is being consumed. I think your point about olive oil and fish oil being the preferred forms of fat is really, really important. I know we don't have too much time left, so I'd love to hear your best advice to our listeners in terms of managing their insulin levels, managing their glucose, uh, what kind of diets they should be following. Obviously, you know, low fructose and everything we talked about, but since many of our listeners don't have access to experts like you, what would be your best advice to people who are concerned about either developing cancer, concerned about recurrence of cancer, or concerned about the correlation between their overweight or their obesity and cancer, what should they be doing in terms of lifestyle, in terms of medication to be reducing their risk? I'll say something that nobody wants to hear. And that is that if you can avoid eating anything that tastes sweet for six weeks, you can break the addiction to sugar. It's easier to break than addiction to tobacco, but it's hard going six weeks because you're completely surrounded by protein sugars, either sugar or artificial sweeteners. And I would say to break the addiction, you have to stay off the artificial sweeteners as well. Anything that tastes sweet, if you eat it, keeps you on the addiction. And after six weeks, everybody I've talked to being able to go six weeks, no longer cares at all about eating anything sweet. And as I say, I've, you know, I did this 1975. I've never been tempted to go back. I guarantee you, except for people who may have severe metabolic uh, disorders, uh, particularly genetic predispositions, which some people do, that everybody will lose weight if they can take any sweetener out of their diet, all sweeteners out of their diet. I should say, though, that if you go back, I mean, just to explain why human beings have this incredible addiction to sugar, it's because... 20,000 years ago, 100,000 years ago, before there was any domestication of anything, before sugar was ever manufactured, the only time sugar was available is when fruits ripened in the end of the growing season. And if human beings at that time didn't eat as much fruit as possible at the end of the growing season, 
they would not survive to the next growing season because they were likely to starve to death. So nobody died of obesity 200,000 years ago. They died of starvation. So the, whoever can consume the most sugar in the autumn of the year would put on the most weight and that would allow them to survive to the next year. That's why we're so addicted to sugar. Yeah, it's very much uh, like what we see in hibernating animals like bears who eat berries exactly. uh, in, uh, in the honey. fall. They even, they even take all the honeybee stings in order to get enough honey to put on weight. Right. So you're making an important point, which is a lot, a lot of people wonder why there's so much obesity. And it's because it's, it's actually survival of the fattest. Uh, in, in the wild, the fattest are the fittest because they can resist starvation. But let me ask one last question. What do you think about other carbohydrates besides sugar? Rice, pasta, potatoes, bread. What's your advice? As I say, if you, if you want to lose weight, then I would re, you know, reduce the consumption of those too because they will make insulin levels go up. As I said, that fructose has that unique ability to increase the total amount of calories that you absorb in your intestine that I started out with, the paper we just published. And that's, that's why it's uniquely driving obesity. But other carbohydrates will also raise insulin levels. And anything that raises insulin levels is going to help preserve your fat cells. So you can't break down fat from your fat cells if you have carbohydrate in your diet. And that's because insulin levels allow the fat cells to retain their fat. So if you want to lose fat, you've got to keep all carbohydrates relatively low. And that's why I say a 10% carbohydrate diet is, is a, you know, 8 to 10%. You're going to lose weight. Probably if you're 12 to 15%, you just maintain your current weight, all depending on how much exercise you do. But that's what I would go for. And the healthy fats, olive oil, lots of olive oil, fish, the Mediterranean diet. Just go a little slow on the pasta. Yeah, I think that's great, great advice. The lower-carb Mediterranean diet, I think, makes a lot of sense. So our, our guest today has been Dr. Lou Cantley, professor of cell biology at Weill Cornell Medicine here in New York City. I want to thank Dr. Cantley for uh, coming today and participating in our podcast. It's really been a, a pleasure, an honor, and a great experience to hear from you. Well, it was great fun to get the message out, and I hope everybody uh, stays healthy and happy. Thank you so much, Dr. Kentley. Thank you for listening to Weight Matters. We hope you've enjoyed this episode. To learn more about how Dr. Saunders and Dr. Aroni are working to transform specialized treatments for chronic conditions through the best in medical science and advanced technologies, visit IntelliHealth.co backslash podcast. And be sure to follow, rate, and review this show wherever you listen to podcasts.